Romans chapter 5. Our text this morning is verses 6 to 11 of God's holy word. Much of what we have been over thus far has dealt with justification by faith alone. As Jason had went over last week, the apostle really uh, sums up his argument. He really anticipates that he's proven what he has set out to do. And in verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, it's a done deal. He's made his point. And now he is getting towards uh, establishing these great benefits that the people of God are able and privileged to experience as a result of the justification by faith. As Jason went over, we have peace with God now through Christ. We have obtained our introduction into this faith. And this is an immovable grace in which we stand. We are privileged then being justified by faith, having peace with God We are able then to even rejoice in our tribulations and in our trials and in our sufferings because we have a hope that is an anchor to our souls, as the writer of Hebrews says. This hope does not disappoint, as he says, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. As he expresses in verses 1 through 5, of the love of God which is poured out into the hearts of God's people, able to be experienced by God's people. And you need to know that too. We, we sometimes shy away from that whole idea of experience because we don't want to go to one side and be charismatic or sound charismatic or any of that other stuff. But at the same time, we have to understand that we do experience the love of God. We do experience the strength of God and the comfort of God and the encouragement, all the things that the Holy Spirit of God produces in our life. We are privileged to experience them. It is real. And the Holy Spirit does this continued work in us, bringing joy to our hearts as we hear the truth of God proclaimed or as we're studying and, and we see something amazing within the Scripture that we didn't see before and our, and our hearts are just joyful. I, this is amazing. I didn't see this before. And this is the, the Spirit of God that is moving within our hearts, producing a greater delight in the Word of God, and in the Lord Himself. In verses 6 to 11, what we are going over this morning, he really establishes the basis on which we are privileged to experience this love of God. This love of God was grounded in Christ Jesus. He's the basis of this love. He's the foundation of it. And so much of what we are looking at here is the benefits of God's love, seeing God's love. How the Lord has done such a great work on our behalf. It is a section of scripture that really emphasizes love. The love of God. Everybody loves a good love story, don't they? Love stories are very popular. You find a number of love stories in scripture that tend to move our hearts. We see Jacob and Rachel. Jacob works seven years in order to marry Rachel. Well, then he's tricked by his father-in-law, ends up marrying the other sister, so he works for another seven years in order to get Rachel. You see his love that he has for her. You see the, the great love between Boaz and Ruth, or even the love that is expressed by Solomon in the Song of Songs. 
That's not this kind of love story. Not what we're getting here in this passage. A few things are changed in this particular passage of Scripture, but nonetheless, this is a story or an account of great, great love. But it's more like Hosea and Gomer. This is the kind of love story that we're finding here. If you remember in the account of Hosea and Gomer, you have the Lord that tells Hosea, go marry a woman of harlotry and have children, etc. And so he marries Gomer, knowing that she's going to play the harlot. She's going to go after her lover. She's going to do all of this. And yet the prophet is commanded to remain, remain married to her as it is a demonstration of the unfaithfulness of Israel to the Lord, and it is being seen through this marriage between Hosea and Gomer. And then you see, really, uh, the climax of that whole uh, section there when it comes to those two. When you get to chapter 3, as Jason has went over before, of how the Lord then commands Hosea, go purchase your wife. Because now, after going out, after her lovers, she now finds herself as a slave. And now she's on the auction block. And Hosea is commanded by the Lord, go buy your wife back. And so Hosea has to go into the marketplace. You know, when they, when they auctioned off slaves in those days, they would strip them naked and set them out before everyone. And Hosea, the prophet of Israel... Wades through the people, no doubt people looking at him, sneering, saying different things, commenting. And he goes and he purchases his wife. And he brings her into the home and he says, now you be faithful to me and I'll be faithful to you. And they remain together. It's that kind of a love story that you're finding here in this passage. It is an account not only of God's love, but it is an account of, of this, great, this great story of reconciliation. Of being enemies at one time and now being brought together. The peace being made. That's what we're finding in this passage. You know, for us, sometimes we don't remember and reflect upon the great extent of God's love. And what it is that he has done on our behalf. This account, verses 6 to 11, I pray will truly cultivate in us a greater assurance in the Lord. A greater joy in the Lord. A greater adoration. As we see God's love on display for us. You have to understand you and I were not desirable. You and I were not desirable as Rachel was to Jacob. You and I had no virtue in us as Boaz seen in Ruth. We were godless, irreverent, rebellious sinners that were shown a, that were shown a great grace by God. So in our text, we're going to see how it is that we can have such strong assurance in our Lord as we behold what it is that he has done for us through his son and be assured that our hope will be truly realized at God's appointed time. So if you would, let us stand and give reverence to the word of God.
We are looking at Romans chapter 5, beginning of verse 6 to verse 11. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let's pray together. Our gracious and merciful God, thank you for this portion of your word. And how we pray, Father, that we would behold your glory, behold your majesty as we work our way through this passage, seeing what great sacrifice that you made in order to reconcile us to you. What great sacrifice Christ made in the giving of himself in order that we would be reconciled to you and that we may have peace. You initiated this reconciliation and it was not on our own own behalf, on our own doing. Father, I pray for all of us here as we work through this passage that we would remember that we would remember this truth that Christ died for the ungodly and that Christ saved us in spite of ourselves in view of us being sinners so that as we behold the salvation that has been granted to us we will not look at ourselves but look to Christ for our assurance father we love you and we give you all the praise and honor for all things in Jesus name we pray and all of God's children said Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> In this passage here, we find a particular passage of Scripture that is very familiar to us, one that no doubt we have probably quoted ourselves. We've heard, especially if you, if you did grow up in church, no doubt you've heard at least... Uh, verse 8 specifically, that God demonstrates his own love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that is truly one of the passages that is uh, very comforting, uh, very encouraging to God's people. But seeing the whole flow of where he is going with this encourages us even more and cultivates in us even more when it comes to the assurance that God has granted to us. We have this difficulty that we, we hear things like, well, Jesus paid it all, and we sing that, right? We sing Jesus paid it all, and we talk about how Christ has accomplished salvation actually and fully and all of this sort of thing, and yet we still have doubts when it comes to our standing before God. And what the apostle does here is, is he really takes us back. He takes back his readers, and he says, remember this. So that you're not dwelling on this, but you're dwelling on what he has done. Don't remember who you were formerly so that you can see who he has made you now. There's, there's that element of, yes, at one time we had 
every reason to doubt and every reason to uh, fear for the wrath of God. Though the interesting part is, being an unbeliever, we wouldn't have feared anyway, though the wrath of God was upon us. But he's, he's acknowledging uh, the truth of where we were standing at one time, and yet even in view of where we were and who we were, Christ still died for us. Christ still was doing the work that was necessary to bring us to God. He initiated this whole thing, and it was not our own doing. So that when you begin to consider the work of Christ, you can say, yes, I am fully assured because this is who I was. He saved me in spite of myself. He saved me even though I was an irreverent and ungodly. He saved me and made me his own. This is a passage of hope. This is a passage of, of assurance. And you can have assurance. You can truly have assurance if we remind ourselves of what we know to be true according to the scripture. That's what we have to go back to. So when the apostle begins really coming out of verse 5, as he talks about that this hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now he's going to elaborate on this love of God that he's referring to. The extent of God's love, the greatness of God's love toward you. It's experienced in the believers, and now you get to behold the majesty of it as you refer, uh, reflect upon the work of Christ and who you were. Here's what he says. In verse 6, he says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This love of God that was demonstrated through the Holy Spirit of God is experienced by believers. It is a love that is toward the believers. And as we have been over a number of times, the love that God now has for you is the same love that God has for the Son that He has had for the Son from all eternity because now you are found in the Son. This love, it's anchored to Him. He says, while we were still helpless. What does it mean? Helpless means to be unable to change our standing before God, unable to help ourselves, unable to do anything about it. You know, I think it was Benjamin Franklin, or at least this statement is attributed to Benjamin Franklin, and you've probably heard it too, that God only helps those that help themselves. Well, this is not true when it comes to Scripture. God helps those who cannot help themselves. And this is what the apostle is saying. You were helpless. Having no hope, being alienated from God, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, as the apostle says in Ephesians. You were dead in your sins. You were the object of God's wrath. There was nothing you could do to change that. Because you're sinners. We were all sinners. Under the righteous judgment of God. We were unable to remove God's wrath from us. Unable to do anything about it. And this is why this is so important to realize this. If you are unable to do anything and you are helpless when it comes to your standing before God, then what in the world would make us think that we could do anything in order to gain favor with God? 
His wrath is upon us because of our feeble efforts, because of our unrighteousness. And he actually says there, while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. You know, that word is used a number of times and just to express God's wrath against the ungodly. Let's see. I believe it's in Second Peter. It's in Jude. Jude, verses 14 and 15. Now think of what he says here. He is expressing God's righteous anger and judgment against ungodly. The same word that he's using here in Romans. So he says in verses 14 and 15, It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He uses that word a lot right there to express the righteous indignation and the righteous wrath of God toward the ungodly. And Peter does use that word. Peter uses that word in Second Peter. We'll start in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. What does that mean, ungodly? It means to be destitute of reverence toward God. Destitute of reverence toward God. You're irreverent. You sin against the Lord and you do so joyfully. You do so blatantly, purposefully. And here, the apostle is saying back here in Romans, that when we were helpless in our ungodly state, fully deserving of the righteous indignation and wrath of a holy God, Christ died for the irreverent. Christ died for the rebellious. He died for the ungodly. Now, if we have doubts about our own salvation, even knowing Christ, you know, here we are, we know Christ, we, we cling to Christ in faith, and yet we have doubts. How is it that we can have doubts now when we look back at ourselves and we see we were ungodly and irreverent and rebellious sinners, enemies of God, because he's going to use that language too, and he saved us and he died for us even in view of that. And if we can look back and see what great love that he has, he saved us even though we were this, then how can we look at ourselves now and say, I'm not sure where I stand. That don't make any sense, does it? Why do we do that? We seem to fall into the same trap that all false religions fall into. And the same trap is this. With their false gods, they have to come up with something. I have to appease my God by some kind of a ritual or some kind of a work. This is what natural man does. This is what natural man has done since the beginning of time. This is why so many world religions, when you really sum up all the world religions, they're all the same 
It's man trying to work his way to God. Man trying to appease a God, whatever God, in order that he might achieve nirvana or achieve heaven, whatever their particular view of the end is. And Christians fall into this too. I must do something. Surely God is angry with me. And the whole time God is saying, when you were helpless and unable to save yourself, Christ died for you. When you were irreverent and rebellious towards God, Christ died for you. Why do you doubt? This love of God that we, that we look to and that we, we rejoice in is grounded in Him. One writer says this, The experiential character of God's love does not float free from an anchor in history. It is rooted in the objective work of Christ on the cross. And he even goes on to say this, Christ died before we made any move toward him. Before we ever made any move toward him, Christ died for the ungodly. And he died at the right time. You, know, you think of passages like Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. When everything was right, in the moment of man's greatest need, when all the conditions were right, God sends forth his son. And you think of the conditions. You think about the sovereignty of God and you think about the wisdom of God and just how amazing that it all is that it happened at this point in history to where the gospel was going to go forth into all the nations. You think about, as we've talked about this before, it's been a little while, but when you begin to think about the judgments of God that he brought on, brought on his own people because of their idolatry, and they were enslaved not only to the Assyrians, but to the Babylonians, and then the Middle Persians, and then the Greeks, and now the Romans, and yet in all of that time, God was preparing the way. He was preparing everything, all the conditions for the time in which he would send forth his son. Because he was in the Babylonian captivity, they can't sacrifice anymore at the temple. The temple's gone. They're in Babylon. They've been taken hostage to Babylon for 70 years. So what did they do? They started the synagogues. And then you have when the Middle Persians conquer the Babylonians. Cyrus the Great decrees for them to go back home. Go back home. And then the, the other kings of, of Persia... Send them home with even more. Go back and build. Build the wall. Build the temple. Build everything. And it also started the time frame of the prophecy. But they go back home. And they rebuild. They establish order. And then here comes along Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, who is spreading the Greek culture everywhere he goes. And all of a sudden, the known world... Within the known world, everybody can speak Greek. And then the Romans come along. And then the Romans build, what was it, almost 12,000 miles of roads to make it easier to travel from one place to another. And that when all the conditions were right and you had peace within the Roman Empire, you could go anywhere. God sends forth his son. So that the places that he goes to first... He goes to the synagogue. He goes to the temple to show that he's the fulfillment of the temple and that the real temple is here. He goes to the gathering places and he preaches to them. His first sermon was out of Isaiah. 
And then when he commissions the disciples to go into all the world and to preach the gospel, they travel on much easier travel on these roads that were built by the Romans, and they can go anywhere and preach the gospel because everybody knows Greek. At the right time, God sent forth his son when all the conditions were right. And you think of that too, especially with the the Persian Empire. I don't want to just say that in passing. I want to tell you some of the context of it. That it began the prophecy when Artaxerxes in the seventh year of his reign, which is recorded in Ezra chapter 7, sends them home to establish order, to build again some of the things that were still lacking. That was in the year... 456, 457 B.C. Now, if you go to the prophecy of Daniel, when it comes to the 70-week prophecy of Daniel, I don't believe personally, and this is, uh, this is just what I hold, I do not believe that the 70th week of Daniel is to be taken off for the other 69 and put in the future somewhere. I believe it is consistent with the rest of them because the prophecy begins Seventy weeks are determined upon your people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement, right? So each week does represent seven years. So you have a period, 70 weeks or 490 years, and that's true. If you begin at the date of 456, 457 B.C., the prophecy states that from the going forth to rebuild and restore Jerusalem until the time of Messiah the Prince will be 62 weeks and 7 weeks or, or 69 weeks, a period of 483 years. So if you start at 456, 457 B.C., you push forward in history 483 years, you come to 26, 27 A.D. And this is why the Jews are coming to John and saying, are you the one? Why? Because they're expecting him, according to the prophecy of Daniel. Now the 70th week. The 70th week, the prophecy says in Daniel, And he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, seven years, and in the midst of the week he will put an end to sacrifice and an end to the grain offering. People will say, well, this is sometime in the future, and this is dealing with the Antichrist. But if you just look at the work of Christ, three and a half years into the ministry of Christ, the night before he dies, He passes around the cup and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant which is shed for many. And the next day he dies and the veil is torn from top to bottom. And Christ puts an end to the sacrifice and an end to the grain offering because he was the ultimate sacrifice. So when you're looking at the things that were taking place in the preparation of what God was doing during the times of these other empires, he started the prophecy for the coming of his son during the time of the Medo-Persian Empire as well. The right conditions, everything. At the right time, Christ came. And at the right time, in the time of man's greatest need, when the conditions were right, he died for the ungodly. This love of God that is being referenced here, that is poured into our hearts, is grounded in his work. And we're going to talk more about that. This hope is secure. This hope is sure. Because he died for us when we were helpless and we had no reverence for him. And he still did it anyway. We had no affection. We had no love. We had no adoration. We had no desire for him. We made no move towards him. 
We rather had hate for him and indifference, a love for what is contrary to his righteous nature. And he died for us. Speaking of what Paul's been saying about justification, you are not justified by God by your works of righteousness because you didn't have any beforehand. You were unable to save yourself, but he saved you in spite of yourself. He goes on to say this, not only were we helpless, and he dies for the ungodly, but then he, he elaborates even further, even from a human point of view, of just how extraordinary that this whole thing is, that Christ would die as a substitute for rebels. He says in verse 7, for for one will hardly die for a righteous man. One would hardly even be willing to die for someone who was morally excellent, someone we would consider to be morally excellent. This is a good person over here, or this is a righteous person over here, and this person is in danger of their, their life because of maybe an outside person or whatever. And we say, we'll, take, we'll, we'll die instead of them. You don't really hear that. You don't hear too much of people doing that, unless they're your children, your family. Parents, we would lay down our lives for our children. We would lay down our lives for those in our family whom we love. And we would do it gladly. But there's something more extraordinary that's here. One will hardly die for a righteous man, one that is morally excellent, though perhaps... For the good man, someone would dare even to die. Perhaps it would be more so that a person would be willing to die for the good man. And in the context, uh, some would say that this is probably a good benefactor. Someone, perhaps even in the Roman Empire, that is giving their resources in order to help further the empire or help to further Israel. Maybe this is a person in the church that is helping to further along the ministry of the church in Rome. Someone would dare even to die for a good benefactor. But here's the extraordinary nature of the work of Christ. But God demonstrates his own love, he says. Not the kind of love that we, that we do as humans. We would sacrifice ourselves for those people that we love. That's how we operate. But God demonstrates his love toward us, his own love, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Would you die for someone knowing that they were nothing but a scoundrel? A thief? A murderer? A liar? A sexual deviant? Would you be willing to die for them? To take their, their place? You know, when it comes to the love that you have of other people, if, uh, if, you, if you knew the house was on fire and you had someone in there that you loved, no doubt, regardless, you would run into the house. You'd run in to save whoever it was that you love. But what if it was a murderer in there? What if it was, like I said, a scoundrel? Just a wicked person that was in the house, would you be a little more hesitant to run into the house? 
Because we would think to ourselves, serves you right. Look at all the bad things you did. We almost, we almost revert into like a Hinduism, Buddhism, don't we? We say, you're reaping what you're sowing, or as people say, it's your karma. It's nonsense, but there you go. Well, we would be more hesitant to do that. But the extraordinary thing here is Christ wasn't hesitant. He wasn't hesitant to die for sinners. And that is just showing even more of the unfathomable nature of God's love. This, this agape love. This highest love that we find within the scriptures. This unconditional love. It's a selfless, sacrificial love that God has for the undeserving. He makes known his love in this very act. And that while we were still sinners, we were, we were far from being on the path of virtue. We weren't walking in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. We were on our own path, turning aside to the path of death. And Christ died for us. Again, first you're helpless and unable to save yourself. And here he's calling us sinners in the sense that we're far from the road of, of virtue here. And yet God demonstrates the highest form of love to his enemies. You, yes, were an enemy of God. And he demonstrates his love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died on our behalf. This is, this is talking about that substitutionary death of, of Christ. He took the place of sinners. Now, while, as, as he says earlier, you might have instances in which someone would be willing to die for another, but even in that kind of a scenario, they still cannot compare to what Christ did. Christ didn't just allow himself to have his life expired on behalf of another. Because, dear Christian, if you're in Christ, obviously, being a Christian... You give your life on behalf of another. Yes, your life is ending. Your life is expiring. But then you get to go to heaven. Right? You cannot take someone's eternal punishment away simply by allowing yourself to be in their place and to die the death that they deserve. But that's what Christ did. Christ didn't just allow himself to die as a human being on the cross the father pours out his righteous indignation, his righteous wrath upon his son. And he punishes him on behalf of all who would believe every single thing that you would do. Christ is paying the penalty for. And you think of the wrath of God. That's not something to just gloss over. I mean, how can you, how can you really express the wrath of God? How can you really know the wrath of God? Only one really knows the wrath of God, and as Jason had talked about, that was Christ. Only Christ really knows the wrath of God. If we just take some of the passages in the Scripture, then it helps to at least amplify for us the, the terror that would grip those that are enduring the wrath of God. Because if you have 
the evil forces of the world, the demonic forces that come and they bow down to Christ as he is in his incarnation and they bow down to him and say, are you come to torture us before the time? And then James says that the demons believe and tremble. They stand in fear of God. And any time that any righteous person, those that we would consider to be righteous people, were standing in the immediate presence of a holy God, they were immediately aware of their own sinfulness and began to tremble or to call down divine curses upon themselves because their eyes had behold the King, the Lord of hosts. Or they say, as Peter did to Christ, depart from me, I'm an evil man. I'm a wicked man. Or perhaps like John. I love the account of John. Here's John, the disciple. He even lays his head on the chest of Christ at the Last Supper. He loved Christ. And yet, when John sees him in Revelation 1, in all of his majesty and his glory, he falls down like a dead man. Passes out at the mere sight of him. Until Christ lays his hand upon him and says, Fear not. If we can just look at passages like that, in which demons tremble and men shake for fear or pass out at the mere sight of God, then that would help us not to just gloss over the wrath of God, but to understand just how unfathomable and terrifying that it is. And yet, Christ, the Son of God, takes that wrath on himself on the cross and he satisfies the justice of God against sinners he takes their place he endures the wrath due to them and yes his life expires he gives up the spirit so yes yes he he tasted death for all men in the sense that as a human being he died but also enduring the second death What great love that God has. Unfathomable. We, don't, we can't understand the height, the breadth, the depth of it. It is an unfathomable love. As to why would God do that? Why would he send his only son and then the son be willing to come? In order to die for those in rebellion, those that hate him. Why, why would he do that? Well, he wouldn't do that. We wouldn't do that at all. But God did. So that if God saves you, and he, he sends Christ to take your place to endure your punishment while you were still a sinner, how can you doubt now? This love is secure because Christ died for sinners. His saving love was towards his enemies. Jesus didn't die for those that loved him, but for those who mocked him. He didn't die in the place of his friends. He died in the place of his enemies. He didn't die for the righteous. He died for the irreverent. He didn't die for the great person that you are, but he died for the morally corrupt. Why do we still struggle? Why do we struggle with assurance, recognizing that we are the recipients of this holy love? We should be secured. We should be secured in our standing with God because 
Christ is the object of our faith. Christ accomplished it all. Christ was our substitute. Christ satisfies the justice of God. Christ lived the perfect life. But that's not all. And that's the wonderful thing. You are helpless, and he dies for the ungodly, meaning you and I. While you were a sinner, he took your place. But then he goes on, and you have this, these comparatives that are in this passage here. And depending on what, which uh, theologian that you read, some say this is an argument from the greater to the lesser, and some say it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. I do agree with uh, the former there that this is an argument from uh, the greater to the lesser. And what he says in verses 9 to 11, and really, as you, as you look at as Christ is our substitute and Christ died for the helpless, that really he's establishing in verses 9 to 11, this realized hope is sure. This hope that is in Christ is sure. He says, after he says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But then he goes on, much more then, even more so. Having now been justified by his blood, by his, and the idea of, of that kind of language, justified by his blood, is amplifying the nature of his death being sacrificial, according to uh, the rituals and uh, the worship of the Old Testament with the sacrifice, uh, sacrificial system. Christ gave his life, he gave his blood. This is magnificent. Just uh, what degree of love is this? And if he has done this and he has given Christ as this sacrificial lamb, what is the result of that? That is a lesser degree, but this is the thing we doubt. We agree that this has actually happened, but we doubt the lesser, which is this. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. This is toward us now. This is what he did. He gave himself as a sacrifice in place of sinners, in place of the ungodly, in place of his enemies. He lives the perfect life. He dies the death we deserve. And then we agree to that. Yes. But then we doubt. Will we really be saved from the wrath to come? How magnificent this is and what a greater degree of a promise that this is as far as the fulfillment of it. But I'm having trouble with this one. But that's what he's establishing. Having been justified by his blood. Justification is what we've been talking about since we began in the Romans. Justified by his blood, you are saved from the wrath to come. How are you saved from the wrath to come? Because if you're justified, that means your guilt has been removed. It's gone. How can your guilt be removed? Because the Son of God took your punishment in your stead And he satisfies the justice of God because of your ungodliness. And if he pays the penalty, your guilt is gone. But then he goes on. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. But look at this. It's like... it's amazing just to, to read some of this and you're, you think the, the Apostle Paul, yes, look at this. But oh, there's more. Let me tell you more about this. And oh, there's more. Let me tell you more about this. And all it does is just produce in us a greater, greater adoration as we behold the love of God and be assured even more of our salvation in him. 
But here's what he says in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We were enemies of God. There's no friendships here. There's no God just putting up with us and dealing with us as we do other people. We, 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 we use languages like, you know, we, uh, we don't really get along with this person over here. We probably never hang out with this person, et cetera, et cetera. But we're cordial with them whenever we see them. That's not even the situation here. Being an enemy of God, the wrath of God is on you. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. You were, this is speaking of relationship. In justification, your guilt is removed. Reconciliation has to do with the two parties that are at enmity with each other. And you have the perfect representative of both. You have Christ who is the God-man, truly God, truly man, a perfect representative of man, perfect representative of God, and he is able to bring the two together because of the blood of his cross. We are reconciled to God. Whereas once you were enemies, now you can say, as it was said of Abraham, now we are friends of God. Abraham was a friend of God. How did he become a friend of God? Because Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. For you who are in Christ, when you believe in the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you, guess what? Now you are a friend of God. And you are reconciled to him. No longer enemies. No longer at enmity. He has reconciled you. Okay, well, if this was this one-time thing and, and Christ lived this perfect life... He was declared righteous. It's his perfect life that is credited to me through faith. He died on the cross and and through his finished work, we are justified by faith. We're reconciled to God. Am I going to be preserved to the end? That's kind of the idea there. We're going to be saved by his life. We're saved by his resurrection because he has risen from the dead. That was his vindication for one. Everything he said was absolutely true. His sacrifice for you in view of all that you would do and all who would be saved. We think to ourselves, you know, how angry that God is with us because of what sin that we have done and committed. And granted, God is not pleased with sin whatsoever. But we have these instances in our life in which we doubt our own salvation because of what we have done. And yet when the perfect son of God dies for you individually in view of your past, present, and future sins, there's nowhere in the scripture where God says, wait just a minute. We only need to endure enough punishment until this day right here because he's going to do something really bad right here. We can't cover that. Or wait a minute. We don't need to die for that guy right there or this person right here or that woman right there because of what they're going to do in their life. No, when Christ pays the penalty, he pays the penalty for everything that you do. Past, present, future, everything. So there is no sin that will separate you from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus. Because he was risen from the dead. He was vindicated. This was God showing his approval, the accepting of his son's sacrifice. And then, of course, you have his coronation. 
as Christ rises as the victorious God-man, he ascends into heaven and he takes his seat at the right hand of his Father to rule and reign. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Speaking of his resurrection life. So you're justified, your guilt is removed, you're reconciled to him, you're you're saved from the wrath of God to come because Christ paid the penalty. You're saved by his life because we participate in that resurrection with Christ. In chapter 6, beginning of verse 8, he elaborates a little little bit on that. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And he goes on. Because he lives, you live. That's a simple way to put it. Because he lives, you live. And going back to what the apostle had said previously in verse 3 about exulting in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. Hope doesn't disappoint all of that. It's almost as if he's alluding back to that in verse 11. And he says again, and not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And notice that he says that word through four times, just in these few verses. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. We are, we are exulting in God through Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the reconciliation. We are saved through Him, avoiding the wrath of God in verse 9. It's all established because of what he did it's 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 sure because of what he did and as a result of this reconciliation that you and i are privileged to have part in being reconciled to god because we were once enemies now we're friends of god now we're children of god we're adopted into the family of god we're heirs and joint heirs with christ all of these wonderful things that we find within the scripture now we have reason to genuinely hope and to praise the lord We exult in God through Him. We rejoice greatly because of Him. You know what happens when we keep looking at ourselves in our performance, how well we're doing in our Christian life or how well we're not doing. We allow that to detract us from beholding Christ. Sorrow enters our hearts, and then when sorrow enters our hearts, then doubt enters in our hearts. We don't know where we stand before God, and this is not... This is not true of us then. We can't rejoice in the Lord through the Son because we're looking at ourselves too much. The Apostle is really giving us a ground for genuine assurance, genuine hope, genuine praise to God because of what He has accomplished in the Son. And it's all going back to that truth. It's through the Son, it's through Him, it's through Christ Jesus. Reconciliation has occurred. He died for you. Justification 
is true of those that are in Christ. It is declared about you because he died for you. And now, as you allow these things to penetrate into your minds, you have reason to truly rejoice in the Lord, thanking him. Oh, Lord, thank you for saving me. Thank you for sending Christ that he died for all of my sins. Thank you that he died for the little things that I consider to be small sins. Thank you that he dies for the things that are big sins. And he did. And he says, it is finished. Or it is paid. It's paid in full. Your salvation is paid in full. From beginning to end. Dear Christian, as you think about that, does that not move your heart then to say, thank you. Thank you. Oh, Lord, be praised in my life because of what you have done. I made no move towards you. I mocked you. I lived in blatant sin. And you still saved me. You still sent Christ to die for me. You imputed his righteousness to me so that when you look at me, you don't see me in all of my sin. Now you see the righteousness of your son. That's why Isaiah, Isaiah just rejoices in that whole scenario there in Isaiah 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the robe of righteousness. He has given me the garments of salvation. How amazing is God to do that while we were enemies. So in these statements that Paul is making, he grounds our hope and our assurance and our justification and our reconciliation. It's all grounded in the perfect Son of God. Now looking at all that, you can definitely try to understand what Paul is saying here towards believers of giving them a sure hope and a steadfast hope in the Son, that our assurance in Him will be strong. But there's some other things to look at as well. I mean, just considering how the Lord has reconciled us to Himself even while we were enemies, it does help to give us a basis, doesn't it, of our relations to others, of how we relate to others. Christ was willing to die for enemies. Christ initiated this whole reconciliation. When someone has wronged you, do you initiate the reconciliation? Or do you say, well, since I'm the one who's wronged, I'm going to wait for so-and-so to come to me. They need to come to me because they wronged me. What's the very thing that you find here? How many have wronged the Lord and never made any move towards him? But while we were helpless, he made the move. And now peace has been made. We have that attitude, don't we? And we all do it. Not one of us here has is, is, is been exempt from that. 
We're unwilling to do much of anything when it comes to situations in which we have found ourselves wronged. Somebody has said something. Somebody has done something. And we say, well, I'm just done with that person. doesn't matter what kind of relationship we've had for however many years. This particular thing has happened. It's interfered with our relationship, and I'm just done. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you have to be friends with everybody. There's going to be people in your life that you're going to be friends with, and there's going to be other people that you know friendship isn't going to be a good one. It may be a scenario of bad company corrupts good morals. You want to you know, have that, that relationship with them, but be careful, too, to guard your own heart that you don't fall into the same things that they're doing. But we don't really, we're definitely not Christ-like when it comes to reconciling. And you look at the reconciliation and you think of, at what point in your life did God save you? He may have saved you as a child. He may have saved you when you were older. But whatever the scenario is there, how long were you in rebellion before he sought you out? So you see, there's a lot of patience there with God, too. A lot of patience with his enemies, a lot of patience with those who mocked him, a lot of patience on the part of God. And then he initiates it. Dear friends, when it comes to being Christ-like, it's not just being Christ-like and loving the things that Christ loves and standing against the things that, that are contrary to the gospel or defending the faith. But it's also trying to be Christ-like, too, in regards to how you respond to other people in showing them Christ. And you may think they don't deserve it. And granted, they probably don't. We didn't. We can, we can absolutely say that. They don't deserve for me to come to them and try to reconcile a relationship. They made no effort to me. So maybe they don't. But then does that give you the justification then to just say, well, I guess this will just go on for however long until they come to me. And what are we doing? What are we doing? We're, we're building up pride in our hearts as if we're entitled to this. We're entitled for them to come and to make it right. But you know, the scripture says, if you have an ought with your brother, leave your gift at the altar, go and make it right, then come offer your gift before the Lord. If you realize your brother has an ought with you, you have an ought with him. And what's the idea there? Your gift, your offering before the Lord. If you have pride in your heart and you have bitterness in your heart, what is... How, Think of how much that that affects your, your, your worship of God and your giving thanks to God. Go make it right. Regardless, if it's you that does it, go make it right. If it doesn't work out, you've tried. You've made the attempt to reconcile even though it was not your, necessarily your responsibility to do so because you didn't wrong the other one. But you're striving to do what is right before God. And to act as he does, to be patient with others, to help bring others along, to be patient even with those whom you disagree with and those that you may be enemies. You know, when it comes to enemies, you know, if your enemy needs help, you help them. You know, you try to be cordial with them, etc. 
You know, it's, it's another thing to be thankful for the, uh, the work of Christ and the love of God towards us because if God was the same way that we were or we are, none would ever be saved. We don't give anyone the time, we rarely give anyone the time of day when we're wronged. Thank, thank the Lord that he wasn't that way. So there is a great lesson here about being patient, seeking out to reconcile with others. And I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. It is hard. But at the same time, if it's something that Christ has commanded us to do and Christ gives us an example of doing, then it is something that the Spirit of God can bring about. He can do it. And it may be that you part as friends. You reconcile, and maybe you don't hang out anymore, but you're able to have peace between you and to part as friends. Or to part in peace, rather. And that's wonderful if you can do that. But let us not think that we're entitled for people to reconcile themselves to us as if we're owed all of this because we definitely weren't owed that with Christ. And think of how often even now that we wrong him every single day. So if we seek to be Christ-like, let us indeed be Christ-like in every aspect. But let us also be joyful in our God because he has removed our guilt He has reconciled us to the Father. We do have peace, and we have a sure hope that is still to come at his appointed time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word, and thank you for all that we learn through this. Father, none of us deserved what Christ did. His his work, his life, his death, his resurrection, we were all ungodly ungodly sinners and yet he died for us and he brings us into the family of God by his life and by his death by his finished work and we are privileged to be the objects of your love your love made known to us and what Christ has done the love that is experienced in our hearts by the spirit of God thank you for this great love and help us father to love others and to be patient with others and to seek to reconcile with others as you have with us. Father, be glorified in our lives. Let us not bring dishonor to you by pride or arrogance or senses of entitlement. Help us to be humble. Hold us close to yourself. Increase the fear of you in us that we would walk in paths of righteousness for your namesake. Father, we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's children said, Amen.